So how about that stock market ride this week? (laughs) Oh, the collective groan. You know, our theology lives at the intersection of biblical teaching and where we live our everyday life. So how about that stock market ride this week? I've had numerous conversations relative to that this week as we have enjoyed, those of you who are, uh, have a presence on the stock market, we have enjoyed the, uh, the gains of the last number of months. But this week, it was all shock and concern and surprise, and it took me back to some of the memories of some of the previous research that I have done. It goes back to Black Tuesday, October the 29th of 1929. Some of you may remember that day. Black Tuesday. You know, there are a number of, by the way, Black Tuesday is when the stock market fell apart and it it wasn't the sole cause of pushing America into the Great Depression, but it was certainly a contributing factor. And for 10 years after that, our country would, would try to slug its way back into financial health and individual and families suffered at that point. We have all kinds of stories that grow out of that. Stories of people who allegedly committed suicide because of the losses in their portfolio that all of a sudden was worth almost nothing. A lot of those, history will tell us, have been exaggerated or stories that were pulled into that time frame that didn't really belong there. But this one, just as a way of capturing how deeply the financial woes of our lives can affect us, this one comes as a documented story out of a newspaper up in Wisconsin. Here's what it reads. In Milwaukee, this was in 1929, in Milwaukee, one gentleman who took his own life left a note that read, my body should go to science, my soul to Andrew W. Mellon, and my sympathy to my creditors. Very few things in life affect us as deeply as financial struggles. So welcome back to the chase. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and I would invite you to turn there because today we're going to take another step with the preacher, as we have come to call him, this writer of Ecclesiastes. And he is slowly deconstructing uh, our value systems as people. And he's taking those value systems that we have adopted as part of how we do life And he pulls them apart one piece after another, and then he's trying to set us up and to begin slowly to build into us a value system that does work. And when our value systems don't work, it leaves us struggling and clawing and trying to find some kind of sense of how to make life count and how to make it meaningful and how to move forward with life with purpose. And so he's deconstructing and reconstructing, but in the process of all of that, he is relentless in challenging our value systems. And today, as we once again eavesdrop into his own chase and the findings of it, the writer of Ecclesiastes turns to funding the chase. We're in Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 10, and I'm going to begin to read through there. But let me just stop for a moment because I've been around long enough to figure out some things. And so please, if if you don't hear anything else I say, well, first of all, I'm wasting some time. But if you don't hear anything else I say, at least hear this. 
Today, as we talk about money, I recognize that there's very little that's more dangerous for a preacher to talk about than people's money. So hear this. Today, I'm not trying to get into your wallet. I am trying to get into your heart. I would really like to get into your heart and root around a little bit and and begin to expose a few things about how you view wealth and the acquisition of wealth and how it relates to that fundamental part of how you live your life. I'm not trying to get your, your money today, but I am trying to get your heart. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, we begin reading this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his, in, with his income. This is also vanity or emptiness or a poof and it's gone. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may uh, carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one, with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And so we drop in now onto this latest segment of the chase of the writer of Ecclesiastes. Where do I find meaning and fulfillment in life? He funds his chase or at least he begins to look into that area. And so he begins with this principle. And and I I should say again, one of the things that I learned early on when you start talking about things that matter to people, well, I'll put it to you this way. The old proverb essentially said, I don't know who said it first, but I love the way he says it. You can shoot any cow in the pasture. As a pastor, you can shoot any cow in the pasture. Just don't shoot the sacred cow. In an American society today, when we start talking about wealth and how it intersects on our daily lives with our faith, it becomes a sacred cow if we're not careful. So I'm going to ask you to listen gracefully today and see if you don't find yourself somewhere in here. He starts with a principle. This is in verse 10. And the principle is that we should love rightly. I'm going to give you a PSA, a public service announcement this morning, men. Wednesday is Valentine's Day. You're welcome. I just saved you a world of hurt. (laughs) The writer of Ecclesiastes is not so much interested in your romantic life, but he is interested in your affections. We should love rightly. Verse 10, once again, I'll read it. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. In other words, what he's saying to us is, uh, be careful about that to which your heart 
attaches itself. We use the word love in a lot of different ways. Let's make sure we use it correctly here. I love bluebell ice cream. Amen. I knew I was in the right church. I knew I came to the right place. I love bluebell ice cream. Means in another way of saying it, that it is higher on my list than other pseudo ice creams. I love the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> Once in a while, you have to, you know, confession's good for the soul, I guess, but um, that means that I prefer, I have attached more of myself to the Dallas Cowboys than that rookie team in Philadelphia, whatever their name is. <laughs> I love coming to First Baptist Church of El Paso. Another way to say that is that my affections have been attached here as opposed to other churches. Not that I don't care about other churches. It's just that this one ranks higher for me. I love coming. See, the, we use the word love in a lot of different ways, but if we could boil it down to one basic approach, it is that we attach our affections to some things in ways that we don't attach them to other things. That's this word. That's this word picture that he's given to us here. I treasure certain things more than others. And so he says, be careful that you don't treasure wealth and the pursuit of wealth higher than you should or higher than other things that deserve a better commitment from us. That's the word here. Now, you see why I said I'm, I'm interested more in rooting around in your heart than I am in your pocketbook because now we're talking about the way we attach ourselves to stuff. And today, the stuff to which we are looking that we should not attach ourselves is the chase of wealth, more so than the wealth itself. So this attachment finds its way into our relationships, and we begin to attach ourselves to people sometimes and to possessions at other times and to any number of things in our lives that the writer of Ecclesiastes would tell us it's not going to get you where you need to go. As a matter of fact, the, the term that he continues to use, and it's in today's text, it's vanity when we attach ourselves and our affections to things or to people that cannot deliver what we're designed for, then we get to the end of that, and it's just like, well, that was a waste, so he starts off with this principle, love rightly. Verse 10, don't attach yourself, don't love wealth, and I would add to that the pursuit of it. Here's the deal for us. That's why I started with the disclaimers that I started with. This cuts directly across the grain of our society. We as a society seem to love attaching ourselves to the pursuit of wealth. That can be problematic for us. I want you to hear me say, the writer of Ecclesiastes, nor I, am saying today that having wealth is wrong. He's not saying that at all. Neither is he saying that the move to acquire wealth is wrong. What he's saying is that when we attach ourselves to that and seek our whole identity and our whole meaning in life in the pursuit of that, that's when we begin to get into trouble. 
Let me just help you out with this. If you want to turn here quickly, you can. I'm going to read a little bit over in the New Testament because the writer of Ecclesiastes is not the only one who weighs in on this subject about our attachment and our affections as it relates to finances and to wealth, better said. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself speaks to this. As we find over in Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to read chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, and let's hear what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Then he comes to the heart of it all when he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And in case we and his disciples at the time don't quite get that. He cuts to the chase finally with this statement that hits us between the eyes. You cannot serve God and money. So it seems like maybe the writer of Ecclesiastes is on to a spiritual principle, a truth for us that drives home. So we, in case you don't get it from Jesus, let's try to see what Paul has to say. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 where Paul says this at the end of a discussion. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What I want you to get from this before we move on is that none of these three high-profile, incredibly mature believers, teachers, the Ecclesiastes writer Jesus and Paul, none of them would say to us that it's wrong to have money. As a matter of fact, the book of Proverbs even says that if you happen to have wealth, it may well be a sign of blessing from God for you. Not so much what you have, it's what you do with what you have and how you focus on getting it. So be careful. If you're loaded, great. If you want to be loaded... I'm not talking about that 1970s kind of loaded. I'm talking about cash. If you want to be loaded, okay. Just watch your step. Because part of what happens in our lives is we tend to attach our hearts to things towards which we're pushing. One of my teachers in college, who may or may not be sitting in this room today, made a quote that I have never forgotten. Malcolm, Malcolm Muggeridge, what a great name. He said this, we gradually become like that to which we continually look. And if we set our affection and our focus on the obtainment of wealth and the stacking up of cash, we may well get that But sooner or later, we find that that does not take us where we're trying to go in life. We fund the chase, but the chase is being run in the wrong field. Now, in case you're here today and one of your heroes of literature is Ebenezer Scrooge and the stacking of money, (laughs) if you're not quite convinced just by what we've seen already in this passage, The writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher as we call him, now gives us five reasons why 
we should really rethink that whole approach that says, I'm just going to stack as much money as I can stack. Here's what he says. Five different reasons. These are in verses 11 through 17. I've already read them all, and I'll read a couple of them individually as we go. I'm going to have to fly through these because there's five of them. And I'm almost, well, you know, if I took two minutes on every one of them, then we would be out of time. And so let's see what I could do just to run through them. Here's the first reason. It's really kind of the overview of the entire passage, verses 11 through 17. But his, his thrust is that this is an endless pursuit. We, we could ask the question, how much really is enough? What is the magic number to which I, I look? And if I arrive at that point, then I can sit back and life will be good and I don't have to worry about it. And I will have achieved everything that makes me who I am. He says it's an endless pursuit. Envision with me, if you will, one of those old school cages with a hamster inside of it. And it's got one of those wheels. They call it an exercise wheel. I'm not so sure that's really the right term. Maybe it should be a mind-numbing exercise wheel. And a hamster gets in that, and he just runs, and he expends all kinds of effort and all kinds of energy and has not much to show for it except a well-toned hamster body. A little bit like the chase. And we find ourselves expending all kinds of energy towards the goal of achieving wealth and accumulating wealth. And at the end of the day, the preacher would say to us that, that it's just empty, that, that we may have a well-toned bank account, but we still have not gone anywhere with what matters in life. So it's an endless pursuit. The next one comes out of verse 11. The second reason that he says it's really illogical to pursue wealth as a way to find your meaning and fulfillment in life, and that is that consumption keeps up with, ac- with acquisition. Verse 11, let's read that one again. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage to their owner has their owner but to see them with his eyes. Here's the picture of the one that says, we do all of this work and we we get there and we get these raises and and the reality of the human nature is unless you're kind of a, a strange duck in this whole thing, then probably the more you make, the more you spend. I used to work in Odessa in the oil fields. And uh, the company that we worked for was owned uh, out of a group out of Shreveport, Louisiana. That was their headquarters. And that was way back in the day before modern banking practices. And so when it came to be payday, they had to courier, hotshot our checks from Shreveport, Louisiana, all the way to Odessa. And so every two weeks, I remember sitting in my desk up at the front And as I was dealing with customers coming in, one of our other guys who worked in the back would come up when it got to be time for the truck to get there. Uh, He would come up and he would stand at the front desk waiting anxiously for his check. Now, that's not too bad. Most of us understand how much we love payday. But in this particular case, I'll never forget what he would say in the posture as he was just kind of slouched over, just kind of just like passed out almost on on the front counter. And he's, every time he would say this to me, I don't know why I'm so anxious to get my paycheck. It's already spent before I even get it. I remember at the time thinking, because I was a young guy, single guy, making more money than I should have, didn't know what to do with it in a healthy way. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I don't ever want to end up there. 
where you work and you get paid and your paycheck is spoken for long before you get it. That's this picture he gives us. It's that consumption keeps up with acquisition. and We work and we work and then it's gone before we get it. The more you have, the more you spend. Here's the third reason. This is in verse 12. I'll read verse 12 in just a moment, but here's the reason that he gives in my own terms. The peace and the security that is expected from wealth cannot be delivered. Verse 12 says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, this sounds a little bit strange. and it's, it's the, the word picture and the way the uh, writer uses his word terminology here is a little bit difficult for us to get sometimes. Scholars seem to be divided on this particular issue, but here's the basic idea of it. Uh, it that is that when, when we pursue wealth as a point of reference in our life and we're after it and we're stacking as much as we can, uh, we can afford some things like rich food and a lot of it, that's this word picture. Whereas the slave, on the other hand, the contrast of this verse, the slave, on the other hand, just gets what he gets, uh, but he's not having to worry about making enough to pay everybody else. He's just got to do his job. And so he sleeps well after eating whatever he got to eat, but the rich guy, the one who's amassing all of this wealth and resource, uh, is able to eat what he wants. He eats a lot of it, but he still has insomnia. Sometimes it's the food that causes the insomnia. But the word picture here seems to be for us that what causes him trouble is that he's got to worry about the next meal and the one 10 years from now and the consumption of the chase works him over. I don't know how you slept last night might be a good way to find yourself in this text. How do you sleep? You know, our society has figured out that there are great chemicals to help us sleep when our chase won't be quiet in the quiet hours of the day. Heard about the guy who woke up one morning, he was exhausted and he was irritable. <laughs> and I'm not talking about your husband. But his wife, you know, tried to, she tried to talk to him, and he wasn't too willing to talk too much. And so she steered clear for a while, and he still was just exhausted and irritable. And so finally she said, what is your problem today? And he said, I didn't sleep at all. I couldn't, look, I couldn't sleep. And she said, well, what happened? She said, I, he said, I was dreaming. And he said, I was given this task at work, and my whole job depended on this task. And they gave me a hundred marbles, and they told me to stack them like a pyramid so that they wouldn't fall apart. He said, I couldn't do it. And it just kept me right on the verge of really being able to sleep and not. There is the picture of this verse for us. We think that the more we acquire the more peace and security it gives us in life. The writer, Ecclesiastes, would argue that there's some problems with that level of thinking. Here's the next one, reason four. This one is that there is no guarantee that you'll be able to hang on to what you get. Speaking of the stock market this week, I don't know how much you lost if you happen to be in there. Our Baptist annuities would cause some people this week to look at it and go, well, you know, easy come, easy go. But we all know that's not true. First of all, it's not easy come. We kill ourselves to stack money. And so when it goes away, 
nothing easy about that. It gets down into the deepest part of who we are. This is verses 13 and 14. He lays a picture out for us of, of one who loses what he has in a business venture. He doesn't have anything left to give to his son. Reason number five, this is verse 15. The last one was there's no guarantee that you'll be able to hang on to what you have, verse 15. And the fifth reason is that it's guaranteed that you won't be able to hang on to what you have. And he takes us back to the fundamental truth of life. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is that one that says you can't take it with you. So let's just play what if. Let's play what if at the point of what if you were to amass the more of a fortune than anybody else in American history. The day you die, it goes somewhere else. You know, the pyramids in Egypt and those burial places for those pharaohs reveals something of the human nature that says, I'm going to amass this fortune here, and I want to find a way to take it with me. So for those pharaohs, their religion and the way they looked at the afterlife, uh, they would often bury with them all of these treasures that came from his kingdom because he would need those in the afterlife. You know, one of the ways we know that's true, We've gone into Pharaoh's tombs in those pyramids, and we've found that those goods that they buried with him are still there. I guess he didn't need them after all. This is one of those in-your-face kind of truths if you happen to love the chase for wealth. There comes a day when you'll go out of this world just the way you came into it with not a thing. So how much sense does it make, the writer of Ecclesiastes would say to us, how much sense does it make to sell ourselves out to the chase and miss the meaning of life? That pushes me to the meaning of life. Actually, let me give you the conclusion, this verse 16 and 17. I love the word picture he gives us here. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? It moves me back to my childhood and Bel Air, Texas, and my dad took us out. I was a kid. I mean, I was probably just barely in school if I was in school. And I got a new kite. We were in a family that didn't have much money in those days for sure. And so a kite was a, a kind of a great thing. And so we went out to the local elementary school and out on the playground of that. And it was one of those windy days in Houston, not, not anything like we get in El Paso. But nevertheless, the kite went up, and my dad had the ball of string that was on a stick that was easier for me to hold. But the wind picked up enough that it wasn't something that I could continue to do safely. So he grabbed it from me, and he started flying my kite. And then he didn't fly it anymore when he dropped the string, and the wind took my kite. And I remember vividly in my little kid brain today, looking backwards, I remember watching my dad as he sprinted across the playground, trying to catch up with that string that was just bouncing across the playground into the neighborhood, over the fence. That's this picture. The picture of a life that is spent chasing a kite in the wind, and the kite is labeled riches. You almost think that the, the preacher here, the writer of Ecclesiastes, has it in for us and our societal values that 
seem to say that it's okay to sell your soul for the company store. So he gives us a better deal, verses 18 and 20. 18 through 20, I'm not going to take the time to read them again. But here's essentially what he says. Here's the point of help for us. Here's what we take from this. He says, find enjoyment in what you have. If you can't enjoy, I'll put it in my terms, if you cannot enjoy what you have that you're working so hard to get, and you can't even enjoy the work that you're doing in order to get it, if you can't do that, then your focus is wrong. Your chase has gotten a hold of you. So he says, get it right. Get your focus right. Learn to enjoy those things. See the hand of God in what you have. Jesus gets to that over in Matthew chapter 6. Most of us know Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first. That's the chase. Seek ye first a million-dollar cushion. No way, that's not what Jesus said. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the promise attached to that is, and all these things will be given to you. Three great teachers, the preacher, Jesus, and Paul, and all of them come to the same conclusion. It's about contentment. It's about pursuing the right things. It's about attaching your heart to Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God and all that comes with that. It's not about how much money you have in the bank. It's not about how much money you want to have in the bank. It's about where's your heart in the chase. So what are you chasing today? My dad told me years ago, if you don't learn to control your money, your money will control you. So who's in charge today? Let's pray. And as we pray, let me ask you to find yourself in this text. Are you chasing the right things in life? Do you see the hand of God in everyday life for you, whether it's an up day or a down day on the stock market, whether your investments pay off or not? Can you still step back from that and say, blessed be the name of the Lord? If you're chasing something that you know is not going to pay off, why don't you get it right? Why don't you do it today? And so, Lord, we ask you to help us to be honest with ourselves and with you today to find your truth for each of us in this passage. Give us the courage and the determination and the hard-headedness that we need to stay rightly focused with our affections on Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and come as we sing.